The LexisNexis Emerging Issues Law Community Podcast. Presentations and interviews with leading attorneys and industry professionals. On this edition, Unpacking Whiting, a green light for states with immigration lawyer and Bender's Immigration Bulletin editor Dan Kowalski of the Fowler Law Firm, Dean Kevin Johnson of the UC Davis School of Law, and Margaret Stock of counsel at Lane Powell's Anchorage, Alaska office. The opinions expressed by guests interviewed on LexisNexis Legal Podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of Reed Elsevier Incorporated, LexisNexis, subsidiary companies, shareholders, employees, or customers, and should not be considered legal advice. Hello, I'm Dan Kowalski of the Fowler Law Firm in Austin, Texas, and editor of Bender's Immigration Bulletin, published by LexisNexis. I'm joined today by Kevin Johnson and Margaret Stock to discuss Unpacking Whiting, a Green Light for States. Kevin R. Johnson is a dean and a professor at the UC Davis School of Law. He is one of the nation's preeminent immigration scholars, and among his many publications is Understanding Immigration Law, available from LexisNexis. Margaret D. Stock is on the editorial board of Bender's Immigration Bulletin, an immigration attorney in the Anchorage, Alaska office of Lane Powell, She is also a retired lieutenant colonel in the Military Police Corps, U.S. Army Reserve. She has taught at West Point and was instrumental in creating the AILA MAP program, the Military Assistance Program, to match volunteer immigration lawyers with service members and their families. Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Margaret, let's start with you. The case is titled Chamber of Commerce of the United States of America et al. versus Whiting et al. Take us back to the beginning, uh, 2007, the Legal Arizona Workers Act and how this all got started. Well, uh, the Legal Arizona Workers Act got started because Arizona has generally been somewhat frustrated with the federal government's inability to fix our broken and dysfunctional immigration system. And so the Arizona legislature decided to draft and pass a law to help the federal government out. And to help the federal government out, the state of Arizona was going to also enforce immigration law. And it was going to do so by taking away licenses of businesses who uh, violated federal law in the views of the state of Arizona. Uh, This was an interesting bill because it passed the Arizona House, 27 votes in favor, 11 against. Passed the Arizona Senate with 20 in favor and four against, so it was pretty resoundingly supported by the legislature. Uh, it was signed into law by the governor, and it took effect on January 1st, 2008. And basically, what it does is it requires all Arizona employers to run new hires through the E-Verify computerized system that the federal government runs to check whether somebody is authorized to work. It makes it unlawful for an Arizona employer to knowingly or intentionally employ an unauthorized alien. And an alien, by the way, is a technical term, meaning a non-citizen, non-U.S. national. It suspends or revokes the business licenses of employers who violate the law. It allows people to file, interestingly enough, a one-page complaint if you think that a person employed by a business in Arizona is an unauthorized immigrant, you can actually fill out a form describing the person and their characteristics and where they work, and you can turn that in to the state authorities in Arizona 
the name of the alleged unauthorized person and their aliases and their address and date of birth and their social security number if you know it. You turn that in and you put in your complaint information on why you think the person is not authorized to work. And then the government of Arizona will go investigate that and figure out whether, presumably, whether the person's unauthorized to work or not. And if it turns out that the person is not authorized to work, then potentially the employer of that person could end up losing their business license. And one Arizona person called it the death penalty for businesses who employ people who are not authorized to work. Now, under the so that's statute, sort of a quick, quick and short version of what's going on. And under the Arizona statute, don't the don't they have to show that the hiring was knowing or 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 is it merely negligent? Well, um, it says, you know, this is what what kind of interesting about it. The language in the statute says that it has to be. It requires evidence that the employer acted knowingly or intentionally okay. uh, in hiring or continuing to employ an unauthorized alien. Right. And when this first was uh, litigated, I think it's important for everyone to know, in contrast to SB 1070, and we'll discuss in a minute, when the lawsuits were filed at first in district court in Arizona, the district court upheld the statute went to the Ninth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit also upheld it. And so it went to the Supreme Court uh, already with Arizona in a in a strong position. Yes, that's the case and you know that definitely changes the posture of the Supreme Court's decision. They're not making any kind of startling new ruling. They're simply affirming what happened below by the other lower level courts essentially. And Dean Johnson, would you touch on the important distinction between this case and this statute and SB 1070, because I have a feeling that many in the general public and even perhaps some some attorneys, when they heard about this case, the Whiting case, were initially confused and maybe still are confused between the 2007 Arizona statute and SB 1070. Well, that's a very, very good point, because I do think some people may be reading too much into the Whiting decision with respect to SB 1070. The issue before the Supreme Court in the Whiting case was particularly a narrow preemption question, and the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986 included a provision that basically said any state or local law imposing civil or criminal sanctions other than through licensing and similar laws, other than through licensing and similar laws, upon those who employ or recruit or refer for fee for employment on the authorized aliens. The issue that the court addressed was this savings clause, this language that says that states have the power through licensing and similar laws to, to penalize the employers of undocumented immigrants. In, in this instance, the Arizona law stripped or could strip or could penalize through suspension or revocation of business licenses of the employers of undocumented immigrants. That savings provision, as the court interpreted it in Chief Justice Roberts' opinion, was satisfied in this instance and allowed for the uh, finding that the Arizona law was not preempted by federal law. When it comes to SB 1070, that business, that licensing provision is not going to come into play and the court's going to have to address the broader question of whether the 
SB 1070 is preempted generally or conflicts with, with federal law and is thus preempted by federal law. So I think that's one difference between the two decisions, well, the two decisions, the two Arizona laws. The other difference is one that you've already mentioned, is that the Ninth Circuit in the Whiting case had uh, affirmed the district court decision that the Arizona law was not preempted by federal law. Uh, and it came to the Supreme Court with the the, the Ninth Circuit's uh, approval. In the case of SB 1070, the district court struck down in large part the immigration provisions of SB 1070. The Ninth Circuit uh, agreed and affirmed that district court judgment. And it will go, if it goes to the Supreme Court, in the position of uh, a law that's been in large part uh, invalidated by the Ninth Circuit. And if it goes to the Supreme Court, I think the deadline for filing the cert petition or or that paperwork is is coming up, isn't it? We're, today we're recording this podcast on June first. My understanding is it's just a few weeks, and then the uh, state of Arizona will have to file, file the paperwork for seeking a petition for certiorari in the Supreme Court. So if they do that, I'm not familiar with the scheduling of of how these things go, but does that mean it? could be at the Supreme Court for next year or the year after? Could be up in the Supreme Court in the next year. I mean, the, the cert petition will be filed, uh, and, a, and a number of things could then happen after that cert petition is filed. For example, the Supreme Court could grant the petition, uh, or before it did that, it could ask the for a response uh, to the petition from um, um, you know, the, the, the plaintiffs in that case, uh, the United States government. And then it could decide uh, whether to grant the petition. Alternatively, the court could vacate and remand the Ninth Circuit's decision in light of the Whiting decision. Could say that this, the Ninth Circuit's decision should be reconsidered in light of our decision in Whiting. That seems more unlikely to me because the Whiting decision, as I mentioned before, deals with a particular uh, statutory provision of the Immigration Reform and Control Act that doesn't seem to be necessarily relevant to SB 1070. Back to this licensing exemption in in IRCA, the majority opinion and the dissenting opinions uh, argued quite a bit about what that phrase meant in IRCA, what, what Congress meant by that, what Congress intended for that phrase to do. Do either or both of you think that the uh, dissents, uh, Justice Breyer's opinion and Justice Sotomayor's opinion, have legs, or or was it more of an exercise for their law clerks to to get published? I think it's an interesting contrast in modes of statutory interpretation. Chief Justice Roberts uh, takes a very plain meaning kind of approach and says, well, this talks about licensing and similar laws. Uh, What does that mean? Here you have a business licensing law uh, and a suspension or revocation of a business license falls within the statutory exception. At at the same time, uh, he seems to broadly interpret this licensing provision to allow states a fair amount of leeway um, when it comes to licenses, at least, in attempting to regulate immigration. The dissent, Justice Breyer, he, he talks about, well, you should consider the legislative history, the context here, this had to deal with the employment uh, of immigrants, and we should look at employment kinds of licenses as opposed to more general licenses. And he uses sort of a, a law professor's kind of approach. He says, well, would this apply to marriage licenses, uh, this licensing provision? It really wasn't designed to, to apply to that, he, he, would, he would argue, and, and we shouldn't treat it as broadly as the majority treats it. 
Uh, well, part of the problem here is there's not a whole lot of legislative history either on what Congress actually meant by that one line in the statute in IRCA. And do we know yet if other states have tried to piggyback on the 2007 Arizona statute and, and now on Whiting to fit within this, this narrow window of opportunity? Well, the, the second footnote in the opinion includes a number of other statutes, uh, some of them passed after the Arizona statute, and they're similar in, in, in certain respects. One's by Colorado, Mississippi, Missouri, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia, and West Virginia, too. Now, Chris Kobach, the uh, author of many of these uh, immigration state immigration uh, statutes or proposals, has been uh, quoted in, in the media as saying that the Whiting decision really is a, a green light for states to uh, move more boldly into immigration uh, legislation. What, what do either of you think of that? Not really. It's it's a green light for states to copy what Arizona did in this one case, if they're so inclined to do that. But I suspect the vast majority of the states are not going to do that because most are going to wait and see what happens in Arizona when they implement this law. And that's a part of the issue that I think goes pretty solidly, not not very well discussed except perhaps by uh, the dissent and by Justice Sotomayor. But implementing this law is going to be quite an interesting uh, exercise for the state of Arizona. And I think a lot of states are, frankly, going to sit back and watch what happens. Some are going to capitalize on Arizona doing this because they're going to get – there are going to be businesses that aren't going to do business in Arizona as a result of this. And states are going to see that. So some states will be reluctant to do this. Other states will simply take the Arizona law, cut and paste, change the names, and probably pass something identical because it's been upheld or something with a slight variation that comports to local conditions. I think Margaret's exactly right that some states may may copycat the Arizona law. Other states may sit and wait. I do think it would be a mistake, uh, and I think that Professor Kobach, well, Secretary of State Kobach now, uh, Secretary of State of Kansas, uh, makes a mistake in, in if, if you read too much into this opinion. I do think it is a relatively narrow opinion dealing with you know, the licensing provision of the Immigration Reform and Control Act and not a general license for the states to engage in immigration regulation. I don't know what precisely will happen to SB 1070, but I, my sense is that large parts of it won't survive any further review, just like it didn't survive review in the Ninth Circuit. I, I'm not sure how much to read in this opinion. Even though I might read it narrowly as, as, as focused on licensing, there is some language that's in the, the majority opinion that, that seems quite broad in terms of state licensing power, at least. So to the extent that states might want to follow suit, it would seem to me to make the most sense to try to couch things as a licensing issue as opposed to a, a more general immigration regulation issue. And I think we might we might see some movement there, although I think it would be pretty extreme where states, for example, might start denying marriage licenses to people who are undocumented and that sort of thing. Which Which has been attempted in a few states, or a few counties at least, county clerks or persons in authority over the marriage licensing issue have tried to uh, deny marriage licenses to couples when uh, one or both of the, of the parties to the marriage are undocumented. But so Go far, ahead. I don't think there is a federal, you know, there's not a system in place where any state is mandated 
an electronic check of a federal database before allowing somebody to marry. I you think know. if they did that, that would raise significant constitutional questions. Right. Speaking of uh, an electronic check on federal databases, let's move now to the second half of Whiting, which uh, may, in fact, have a much greater impact on all of us, and that is the uh, mandatory E-Verify aspect. Margaret, can you tell us what the Supreme Court said, what the, what the uh, Arizona statute says about E-Verify? Well, sure. Arizona makes the use of E-Verify mandatory, where currently at the federal government level, with the exception of uh, some federal contractors, E-Verify is still voluntary, although it appears that the federal government is maybe moving in the direction of eventually making it a required system throughout the whole United States eventually. But that, that hasn't happened yet. And so Arizona is leading the feds, the federal government, on this by mandating the use of E-Verify by Arizona employers. And this is the part that I think is going to be most interesting because it appears that every employer in Arizona is supposed to use E-Verify. And that has not been the case so far nationally, that every single employer in a particular location has been required to use E-Verify. Uh, that has significant practical consequences. Uh, there are errors made by the E-Verify system. Without going into all the gory details of this statute, it, it does appear to me that it shouldn't be called just the Legal Arizona Workers Act of 2007, but the Legal Arizona Workers and Full Employment of Immigration Lawyers Act of 2007, because you can tell from the way the statute's written that there are going to be a lot of errors, a lot of problems, a lot of people being forced to hire lawyers to learn how to comply with the system. People will have to hire lawyers when there are complaints filed that the system's not working correctly. Uh, they'll have to hire lawyers to defend against complaints. The way the system's set up, it's supposed to solve a really big social problem, but it's not really going to do that. What it's going to do is create more bureaucracy, a, a larger regulatory burden on employers, a larger regulatory burden on people who want to work for a living. And it doesn't just cover unauthorized immigrants. It's anybody you know, who's hired in Arizona has to go through this system. So it is going to be a very big social experiment on how E-Verify works for everybody. And I suspect based on what we've seen in the past, it's it, there's going to be a lot of problems with it. Coincidentally, just this morning, uh, June 1st, I received an email from USCIS a notice to the field, actually to, to the world, that their verification database was down due to a power outage. So part of the federal federally verify system uh, was or is down for a few hours, maybe more, today. So uh, conceivably, if 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 one is is trying to get a job or or be re-verified to keep a job. Uh, in a state uh, that's using E-Verify, that job may be put on hold for you for a while. Well, these are this is part of this whole huge regulatory burden that's now going to be imposed on every business in Arizona. Arizona's going to have to figure out what are they going to do if there's a power outage and the federal you can't check the federal database. You know, how are they going to deal with that? What if you're a babysitter working for you know some employer? Do you have to be E-Verified before you show up? You know, to babysit their kids. There's a whole a whole bunch of hypotheticals that have to be dealt with that Arizona has not yet dealt with. And um, I've reviewed some materials that are being put out by attorneys in Arizona that work for the various governments, county attorneys and so forth, and a lot of them contain errors about immigration law. 
So there's going to have to be a whole educational effort. Immigration lawyers, luckily, will have lots of business because they're going to be now having to go around and do seminars for every business in Arizona on how to use E-Verify, how to comply with E-Verify, what are all the problems with E-Verify. Employers are going to have to train everybody in their office to use the system. So if you're a small business and you only employ two people, maybe your husband and wife business, you know, you still going to go have to go get the training. Maybe you have a part-time employee that you bring in every so often. You're going to have to go get the training and learn how to use the system. There's a big regulatory burden being imposed on all businesses in Arizona by this new law. Ironically, the folks who tend to support laws like this are generally in favor of less of a regulatory burden on small businesses, but they support this law. Dean Johnson, you're in California, one of the states with the largest population and uh, with the one of the largest Latino populations in the country. And it's one thing for a state like Arizona with a relatively small state population to mandate E-Verify. But if California were to embark on a statewide E-Verify program, can you talk about those implications? Well, it's hard to imagine something like that happening in California. The, the politics have changed since the days of Proposition 187 when California was at the forefront of passing some uh, tough on immigration laws. But we're, we're talking in, in this state about, uh, you know, millions of jobs, millions of accesses to E-Verify. And one thing that's worth emphasizing, and it's something that Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Breyer argued about, that is how big the error rate is in E-Verify. There have been some problems in the past with inaccurate information about authorization to work. Um, being spit out by E-Verify. And there's some concern uh, that we may hear an awful lot of errors uh, in the next year or so as Arizona tries to implement the the, the law and and it requires its employers to to use E-Verify. But the federal government did represent to the Supreme Court that it thought that it could deal with the workload of to the system of its employers accessing E-Verify. I'm not sure if the same response would hold true if it was California or New York or Texas saying that it was going to require all its employers to to access E-Verify. The the issue more generally uh, that that hasn't really been talked about but Justice Breyer focuses on is, well, one of the things that Congress was worried about in the Immigration Reform and Control Act was that there might be discrimination against potential employees who were thought to be, quote, foreign and, and, and more likely to be unauthorized to work. And that is a concern, particularly in places like Arizona, that has some recent and some past history with discrimination against Latinos. And you've probably heard, I know you've heard about uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio from Maricopa County, who has been charged and sued and actually both settled and been found guilty of uh, civil rights violations um, against immigrants and Latinos in the state. So I do think that there is a concern, um, a concern of Justice Breyer and Justice Ginsburg, at least, on the court, but also Latinos in the state of Arizona, that this law may result in discrimination against Latino, uh, including U.S. citizens and lawful immigrants in the employment market. Yes, and the, the back to the scalability issue, whether it's California or Texas or, or nationwide, when you multiply the, the numbers out to a, a national level, uh, even if the current error rate of E-Verify is reduced, you're still talking about a, a large 
total number of individuals on a daily or weekly or monthly basis whose ability to get a job or or keep a job are compromised by by the system and it, it remains to be seen if you are trying to get a job and you are authorized for employment in the United States but the system kicks you out and you're delayed by a day or a week or a month what recourse do you have do you are you able to get compensated for those lost wages from the state of Arizona or the federal government if there was an error that denied you a job? I wouldn't hold your breath. I wouldn't hold your breath, but I I do think there's going to be a lot more discrimination, anti-discrimination lawsuits going on over things like this because we, we just know from past experience when you impose a big regulatory regime like this, you're going to have abuses that just that's going to happen and people are going to get upset and they're going to file lawsuits. So we will see an increase in litigation where people are claiming that they were discriminated against. Um, The other thing you you didn't mention, Dan, but I think this is important for people to understand, is that the employers who are using E-Verify right now tend to be a little more sophisticated than employers generally are. And so the mandate to apply this to all employers is just we know it's going to increase the error rate. Right now you don't have employers using E-Verify who aren't relatively sophisticated about the system. So the error rate is probably lower right now than it would be if you apply it mandatorily across the board to all employers. Right. Now, we know that large employers with with big payrolls of of 100 or more or thousands, they're sophisticated. They have lawyers and they're generally compliant or they want to be compliant. But with the thousands and tens of thousands of small employers in the United States who may be challenged by an E-Verify system or even just the basic I-9 system. Do either of you foresee more small employers going off the books and and, and paying their employees under the table in cash to just avoid all of this? Well, I think that's going to happen, but we're also going to see more identity theft going on. You know, E-Verify doesn't solve the problem of unauthorized immigrants in the country. It's pitched somehow to be a solution to that, but what it does is it simply imposes a larger regulatory burden in an attempt to get every employer to help solve the problem. But people are fundamentally going to want to work and survive and support their families. And so if their their fundamental goal of surviving is blocked by a bureaucratic obstacle, they'll they'll usually go around it, which includes paying people off the books, pretending people aren't really employed by them when previously they might have done the paperwork if it was straightforward, but now it's too tough to do, so they're not going to do it. And we know it's not just unsophisticated people. Uh, Alan Burson, the c- uh, current um, head of Customs and Border Protection, wasn't doing I-9 forms on his household help. Uh, apparently, if he's living in Arizona, he's going to now have to use E-Verify on the household help. And that's an individual who is at the highest ranks of the U.S. government now, holding a very high-level immigration-related job. And he was having trouble complying with the system. So I think that's going to be a problem, too. But the other issue I just briefly mentioned is identity theft. We're going to see a big increase in that going on. And that'll lead to you know, more criminal prosecutions, more people with their credit records messed up and their tax records messed up and that sort of thing, because people desperate to work are going to borrow identities of other people, which can get through the E-Verify system. So we're going to have a lot more of that stuff going on. I do think your point's a good one, Dan. I I think that the more costs you impose on small business, the more small business are going to go out of business or go off the books. And I think that many people today 
know about the, the fact you have to file an I, I-9 if you ha have a domestic service worker in the home, but many people just don't want to do the paperwork. And by re requiring this additional layer of paperwork and regulation on small employers with more limited resources, I think that you are going to see an incentive uh, at some level, an incentive to have workers work off the books and take a gamble and see how the enforcement works out. We have a few minutes left. Uh, if if both of you would give some concluding comments uh, about Whiting in particular and about the, the bigger picture in general. Margaret? Well, I found Whiting to be quite fascinating because it appears to me from the majority opinion that the justice on the Supreme Court actually don't understand the employment verification system. Uh, there's a statement by, in the majority opinion, that a person who's been ordered removed from the United States must not be authorized to work. And as every immigration lawyer knows, that's not necessarily the case. Somebody right. ordered removed from the United States might actually have permission to work in the United States if, for example, they've been granted deferred action, but the justices don't seem to know that. So the opinion is interesting to me because they, in the majority opinion, they seem to be sticking as Kevin said to, you know, fairly narrowly looking at a particular line in the statute and saying, you know, this is how, this is not preempted because Congress put this language in. They don't seem to be familiar with the practical implications of what they're holding and how that is going to play out. I find that fascinating because the majority opinion is written by justices who tend to usually be conservative and interested in the impact on business, and they didn't pay any attention to that impact whatsoever in the majority opinion. They simply engage in this narrow discussion about preemption and statutory analysis. Uh, the dissents do talk about the impact, the actual impact on people of statutes like this, but that's not necessarily typical of those justices either. So I find it fascinating in terms of the, the ideologies behind the opinions uh, and how it's playing out in, in the actual decision. As Kevin said, however, though, this is a pretty narrow opinion and so it's not going to, I don't think, lead to any path-breaking changes other than creating a lot more work for immigration lawyers and for a bigger, much bigger regulatory burden for employers. Uh, the net result of the whole thing, though, I think, is it's not going to solve our nation's immigration problems by having states pass laws like this. And that's a fundamental problem that we still have not grasped in the United States, that we can't solve these big social problems simply by passing regulatory laws that create ever bigger and bigger regulatory regimes. Thank you, Margaret. Dean Johnson? I think Margaret's last point is a real important one worth emphasizing is over the last few years, we've seen an incredible number of state and lo local laws designed directly or indirectly to regulate immigration. They have created a great deal of tension, a lot of litigation, uh, but not much solution <laughs> to the problem. Uh, it's only when Congress steps in and at some point passes some kind of comprehensive immigration reform that, that really addresses the, the issues of immigration to the United States and the current issues we're facing that, that we'll see some change. Now, with respect to Whiting, I, I found much of interest in the opinion. It's important to remember that the newest justice, Elena Kagan, did not participate in the decision, apparently because she was involved somewhat in the administration uh, on, on deciding the, the administration's role in some of these preemption cases. Um, Chief Justice Roberts wrote for the majority, a 5-3 majority, and there were two dissents, and I don't know precisely why they didn't join up together, but Justice Breyer focused uh, more on his concern about 
civil rights deprivations and on the interpretation of licensing than anything else. And Justice Sotomayor focused a lot on state court adjudication of whether or not somebody was an unauthorized worker or not. Um, but she, she, she had practical concerns, but somewhat different practical concerns than Justice Breyer. So, so I, I found that all interesting, just seeing how this sort of lined up here. Uh, I do think that we're not sure where we stand after the decision as opposed to before the decision. We're just as much up in the air. You know, we know that this particular statute has been upheld by the court, but I don't think we should read too much into uh, what happens with respect to SB 1070 in any future Supreme Court review. One of the things actually I, I found most interesting is Margaret mentioned it was a conservative group of justices who didn't really consider the views of business, it appears, in, in ruling for the state of Arizona. And, and a fairly narrow preemption analysis with respect to immigration. It was just a, a couple months ago in ATT Mobility versus Concepcion that the court, in an opinion by Justice Alito, found that a sort of bare-bones set of provisions in the Federal Arbitration Act broadly preempted state law when it comes to consumer class actions and required allowed um, consumer class actions uh, to be barred under arbitration clauses in um, phone contracts much more intrusive on the states and very difficult to make uh, consistent with what the court did in uh, the Whiting case. Seems to be very different sort of orientations towards federal preemption, federalism, and states' rights. And to me, that was one of the most interesting things of the, the decision. Well, thank you, Dean Johnson. Thank you both. I'd like to thank my guests, Dean Kevin R. Johnson, professor and dean at the UC Davis School of Law, and Margaret D. Stock, an attorney in the Anchorage, Alaska office of Lane Powell. Thank you both very much. For Bender's Immigration Bulletin, LexisNexis, this is Dan Kowalski. Thank you for listening to this LexisNexis legal podcast. Visit the LexisNexis communities at LexisNexis.com slash community. The LexisNexis Emerging Issues Law Community Podcast, copyright 2011 by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated.